So hello, my name is Dr. Ardell Piper. Uh, I am an obstetrician gynecologist from Ottawa, Ontario, and I am um, presenting to you today some of the uh, talks that were at the Menopause Society meeting in Philadelphia this year in 2023. Um, personally, I specialize in menopause medicine, so um, it was great to be able to attend the meeting virtually. Um, these two presentations today um, focused on cognitive health in women, and so um, we actually created a bit of a mashup of these two together um, because they do have overlapping themes um, with regards to women's cognitive health. So these are the uh, speaker acknowledgements for the two presentations that I am summarizing today. We do understand that Alzheimer's disease um, eventually happens after an accumulation of amyloid and tau um, over years, and this seems to precede the actual neurodegeneration. And so a lot of the focus these days on research is about how the amyloid and tau accumulation can be decreased with the hopes then that it will reduce the later incidence of Alzheimer's disease. It is also acknowledged that Alzheimer's disease is diagnosed more frequently in women, and the decline is unfortunately faster in women. Some of this might be because our current cognitive tests for diagnosis do not really accommodate for the fact that women at baseline tend to excel in verbal memory compared to men. Therefore, they may overperform and be underdiagnosed in their early stages. So overall then, Alzheimer's disease is a concern for us to investigate further when it comes to women's health, especially because many women have symptoms of cognitive difficulties during menopause um, and the transition. And um, studies do seem to show that this um, does resolve um, in the post-menopause transition phase. So even though many people are experiencing these symptoms in the menopause and it gives them a lot of concern and worry that this is uh, a predictor of them getting dementia um, later on, at this point, these cognitive complaints don't seem to have a close correlation um, with Alzheimer's disease uh, later on. It was uh, also appreciated uh, that there are many risk factors uh, to developing dementia. Age uh, cannot be changed, neither can genetic factors. And it has been observed, for example, that APOE4 has a bigger impact on women when it comes to, uh, to a risk factor. Um, diabetes has a bigger impact on women and brain health. And other risk factors actually tend to be more common in women, depression, inactivity, and so then this raises the question, you know, how much is menopause truly a risk factor in the fact that it really can't be modified? It is important then to note that these uh, risk factors do have different incidents between the sexes. Um, for example, the APOE4 allele may be associated with four times the risk compared to men um, when women carry this allele. Um, before age 70, as we've mentioned before, women do have better cognitive performance than men. But if they have diabetes, women have a greater risk of Alzheimer's disease and a faster decline. And women with cardiovascular disease are 1.5 times more likely than men with cardiovascular disease to get dementia. So there is more attention than being paid to this correlation of the APOE4 gene in women. Mutation carriers have an accelerated rate of decline in their, in their 50s, which does tend to also be the time of transition to menopause. Um, and so how much of this is coincidental, how much of this is causal, um, there's a lot of research going on in that area. Um, beyond the APOE4 mutations, it also is important to note that in the rest of the population, there are modifiable risk factors. And they did list the 12 top ones right here. 
um, comorbidities and lifestyle are um, significant. Um, and the speaker did suggest that um, up to 40% of dementia can possibly be preventable by addressing these lifestyle factors. Um, this uh, slide um, does show the uh, uh, modifiable risk factors for Alzheimer's disease and the estimated percent of cases that they may account for. This is for men and women together. So uh, when you look at this also from, uh, from an age perspective, it was appreciated that at different crucial points in life, different risk factors may have an impact. So from the top there in um, low education in early life um, is something that is you know, significant um, uh, for risk factors later on. But then other risk factors like hypertension, obesity, alcohol intake, um, then in later in life risk factors like depression, isolation and, and diabetes, um, all these things seem to just kind of compound in each other. So if we know that these risk factors account for a different percentage of dementia in men versus women, then the timing as well could differ um, by, by sex. So there isn't much um, answer to this hypothesis yet, but it does remind us that women um, who are concerned about aging and um, dementia with aging could do things earlier on in their life in perimenopause um, and with good sort of midlife health lifestyle changes. And, um, and these then point to important discussions we should be having with our clients. We do have studies as well that, um, or this speaker did review studies that showed that estrogen does support learning and neuroplasticity. Um, and so this was a rat study that showed that when estrogen is low, there are fewer dendritic spines, but when estrogen goes up with ovulation, there are more. And then again, these drop again after ovulation. So even during um, fertile years with uh, estrogen levels that are going up and down, we do see um, how even in those very small timeframes, um, the uh, nerves can be different. Um, studies have also shown that removing ovaries from animals um, can help clarify um, this, uh, this estrogen association with synapse formation and connectivity in the brain. Um, that less beta amyloid um, and, and better clearance um, and better cerebral blood flow, um, these all seem to um, be associated um, with estrogen. And of course, um, these things also interact with the APOE um, genotype. There are also various mouse models that showed um, estrogen being protective against amyloid toxic effects. Um, so one was um, had uh, lab rats with um, brain damage from strokes, and it did show that giving estrogen um, could improve recovery. And as well, um, there were studies about pre-exposure uh, uh, pre, um, pre um, before strokes to um, estrogen um, showed that those nerves then actually were also more resilient and had less damage if they had been um, exposed to estrogen first and then um, exposed to amyloid. So these animal models are not only focusing on estrogen, but also on FSH, which of course is elevated during menopause. Um, so if FSH um, is blocked before ovaries are removed, they're also seemed in these animal models to be less amyloid and tau. So with all this in mind then, um, the speaker then sort of turned the focus to what can be done to target then these modifiable risk factors as we currently know them. And she provided some key strategies. The first was focusing on methods of creating positive um, uh, conversations and hope rather than people feeling you know, discouraged and powerless and just sort of at, at the whim of the unknown of whether or not they were going to develop um, dementia. So taking time to have these good discussions with our clients about, yes, the impact of their family history, but then also focusing on what is modifiable 
um, particularly based on you know the life space that they are in and lifestyle options that they can modify this can create some optimism and therefore empower people to make these modifiable changes rather than feeling hopeless so for example um, people have become um, a bit desensitized I think about the conversations about weight loss it just seems to be a, a nagging thing that's out there all the time facts however if we can reframe this and say that exercise and nutrition not only have those obvious benefits, but also can impact on brain health and cognition um, and reduce a later incidence of dementia, then maybe we can shift the focus of exercise um, as being a means to an end of a physical appearance that people desire and superficial attractiveness instead of, um, and instead now be putting that focus on um, uh, framing exercise as a crucial method of improving our internal body health and, and, and particularly even our brain health. So the um, second strategy um, involves having these open and honest conversations about what we know about menopausal hormone health and brain health. And there is um, lots of confusion in this area because the literature is confusing and of course people's interpretation of the literature is a bit confusing. We can, of course, acknowledge that the bulk of there is a bulk of research that does show that those with premature ovarian insufficiency do benefit significantly from replacing estrogen when it comes to later cognitive health. However, at this point, we don't have um, the same um, amount of evidence about the impact on women um, of average age going through menopause and particularly those who don't have severe symptoms. Right. So currently that research is inconclusive. And, and of course, that research sort of tips a bit more into, um, you know, primary prevention in, in the global population of, you know, potentially less or, or very um, less symptomatic or even asymptomatic women when they go through their menopause. Um, at this point, the conclusions are that um, for people going through at the average age of menopause, um, some studies show a little bit of benefit, some studies, you know, show very little. And so, um, you know, at least we can say to women going through the menopausal transition that it's, it's unlikely to be detrimental. Um, but um, when it comes to the longer term um, studies or of the studies in women of older age groups, um, we do, of course, have um, some studies of those uh, of people who are long past menopause. Um, that would suggest that late starts to hormone therapy are more likely to be detrimental. And um, so that is where the experts currently agree in, in that if that has, there's been a long time since um, the menopause transition, it likely is, is not beneficial um, to be starting hormone therapy at that stage. And so, you know, then this all ends up leading to questions of, well, then these gaps in the literature, um, how can you, how should we be addressing these and what are the important questions? So who can benefit from hormone therapy at the time of their transition, or maybe later on, if you know, we could um, subdivide out those um, different demographic factors? Um, does it matter about, about weight? Does it matter about genetics? Does it matter about the severity of their symptoms? So eventually, um, hopefully we can get some better guidance about um, which types of hormone therapy and which people should be targeted with that hormone therapy in order for us to show a benefit to brain health later on. Um, this diagram then from the second speaker then summarized the research that has been shown based on the, um, the impact of this, um, this early window in postmenopause versus much later. The timing hypothesis has been suggested that there is this window of opportunity if hormone therapy started very early in the menopause transition. Um, research then shows, you know, reduced risk where studies of um, starts later on, um, uh, and that includes the WHI, of course, did not show the same benefit and risk then is either neutral or increased um, with those later starts. 
So this can lead to then um, potentially confusing issues um, and confounding issues where recent studies then that show that hormone therapy can decrease cognitive complaints, sleep issues, hot flushes. Does that reflect then on dementia risk later on? The speaker then reviewed, of course, the studies that we do have, um, namely the ELITE and the KEEPS trials that um, tested then this timing hypothesis in the ELITE trial, early starts to hormone therapy showed less atherosclerosis, um, but not necessarily um, cognitive effects. The KEEPS trial, however, um, showed that starts to early starts to hormone therapy did not slow atherosclerosis or change cognitive markers by the end of that study. So um, the question um, then for the most part is that most of these research studies have simply been too short to pick up um, changes in long-term outcomes. So the speaker did um, appropriately point out then that it makes a difference um, to acknowledge then the demographics as well in represented in these different studies, you know, the age groups of clients. Um, and in the later group, then the dementia incidence is already, you know, potentially slowly increasing in the general public. Um, the WHI was powered to measure dementia incidence in that cohort of the 65 to 79 year olds. So we really shouldn't be using the results from that study to generalize um, to other age groups and younger um, demographics. So when we take a closer look then from that lens, um, the KEEP study then did use a younger age group compared to the WHI. None of them had prior cardiovascular disease events. Um, they were treated for two years with oral um, conjugated equine estrogen versus transdermal estrogen. And, um, and they all did have um, the micronized progesterone. We can appreciate, of course, that dementia takes decades to develop. And so the pathological phase, though, does, does precede the observable cognitive decline um, with gradual changes in the brain leading to pathologies. And after there is a threshold, the cognitive function then starts to decline and people enter sort of a mild cognitive impairment phase. So um, having an opportunity to look back at pathological development with imaging biomarkers at early stages, um, decades before clinical dementia develops, um, you know, that is quite helpful. So the KEEPS neuroimaging study, biomarker study, did then observe, you know, that for seven years and then after follow-up um, of hormone therapy um, later on. Um, this shows the design with um, MRIs and cognitive um, tests um, from baseline and um, through 84 months after starting hormone therapy. Um, the MRI results were looking at white matter and, and hyperintensities, um, showing that they are a marker for small vessel disease uh, in the brain. And in KEEPS, um, there was a significant increase um, in uh, conjugated equine estrogen versus placebo, where in transdermal estrogen, um, the group did not reach statistic statistical significance. Um, additionally, women um, with greater activated platelets at baseline seem to have an increased um, white matter hyperintensities, um, more so than women who had less of this microvascular, um, like these microvessel vesicles. So the conclusion then was that the thrombogenic properties of, of oral conjugated equine estrogen may be responsible then for that accelerated increase that we did see um, that, that, that are then the, these white matter hyperintensities. Um, comparing the conjugated equine estrogen to the transdermal estradiol, there was no difference though in actual cortex volume compared between the groups. Um, and um, so that did not seem to be a difference then between um, the oral and the transdermal group. Therefore, the conclusion then from KEEPS um, was summarized as being um, no long-term benefits from um, hormone therapy in women who had good cardiovascular health 
but in women who already had some cardiovascular or microvascular disease, um, then there is a different baseline risk. Um, so, you know, that helps to give us, you know, context when we are, are giving our clients that information, you know, that again, women who um, are already practicing healthy lifestyles, who have less of these risk factors at baseline, um, we don't have, and it might take a longer time and, and much larger studies, maybe even almost to the point of being impossible, you know, to really be able to quantify um, any benefit of hormone therapy in those people who have very few for risks at baseline. So then returning then to that conversation of, you know, those four different methods of, um, of uh, encouraging our clients with strategies to support healthy aging. Um, remember those, you know, first two, we're building that positive framework and then educating about what we do know and what we do not know. Um, after that conversation, then it's important. Um, and in this, this third point of four, to ask about barriers. So um, flipping the script then um, from clients feeling anxious because of the unknown that they are not in control. Instead, you know, to really change that conversation about the impact of things that we can change and what things in our lives are keeping us from instituting these changes. Um, this can change um, the conversation overall dramatically. So talking about how to really practically reduce stressors in our lives, how to improve sleep quality, addressing depression, um, and um, these are all very important. And acknowledging people's financial situation, that's what the dollars is referring to, um, realizing that finances can be a barrier often to instituting these lifestyle changes, and um, then overall counseling people with strategies that do not require hefty finances. Um, uh, the final point here was challenging that culture of, of mis and disinformation out there. If we don't ask though about these barriers, um, uh, you know, stress, sleep, depression, um, finances, and the influence of, of misinformation, then we potentially are, are missing the opportunity to really help women make these lifestyle changes. The fourth strategy then was this concept of progressive change. Um, and this can be very amenable then to handouts because again, these are all time consuming conversations. So creating and sharing resources with um, clients that is specific to where they are currently starting from is more likely to then achieve results that are sustainable with time. So if clients, for example, start off from being quite sedentary at baseline, um, coaching them with, you know, first very small movements in the right direction, making small and sustainable changes to diet, you know, to be slightly reducing processed foods, you know, to be, you know, slightly consuming um, less alcohol, um, uh, to be, you know, challenging themselves on it on levels that are sustainable. Um, you know, this can can speak um, to people in, in that starting off point and give them goals that are sustainable for them at that time. However, once they move forward, or if your client is not at that baseline, but already is somewhere in the middle where they already do have some activity, they already are, um, you know, have improved their diet, well, then push them a little bit more, push them um, to have a little bit more activity, you know, to, to move from just avoiding processed foods to um, a bit more towards the Mediterranean diet. Um, if they've already reduced their alcohol a little bit, encourage them to reduce a little bit more. Um, and so, um, and then of course, once you get into the, the groups of people who are, are already instituting a lot of those changes, again, tailoring that advice. So um, the overall you know, message is doing um, something is better than nothing. Um, and if you're starting at menopause, finally instituting some of these lifestyle changes, um, you still have decades to benefit from that. And so it's never too late to, um, to change our lifestyles, to drinking less, 
to moving more, to um, changing our patterns with processed foods, um, to picking up a new hobby and learning something new. Um, it, it's never it's never the wrong time to institute these changes. So then overall, the take home messages um, are that, you know, women are at risk of having more cognitive decline and aging, um, but many of these risks are modifiable. So let's have hope. Um, menopause does play a role, but again, since it is a sort of a non-modifiable risk factor, um, it is still unclear at this point about um, the impact of menopausal hormone therapy on all comers when it comes to dementia, but likely in higher risk groups, you know, we're going to see that research being a little bit more clear. Um, hopefully in the near future. And so then, of course, the strategies then that we can use um, with our clients to support their cognitive aging, framing the problem, providing solutions, education, proper education about hormone replacement therapy, asking about barriers, and um, and overall, you know, sharing guidelines and, and good handouts um, for people. So overall, then, I did find... Um, uh, it was interesting that this was, I think, a bit more of a focus this year than in other menopause meetings. Um, it was, um, we do know, of course, that um, brain health and long-term risk reduction um, is being studied and we don't know all the answers yet. Um, we do have to continue using the animal models. And, um, and what we're finding then at this point from the basic research doesn't change the truth that menopause symptoms should be treated with hormone therapy. Um, if possible, if not contraindicated, um, regardless of whether or not we have definitive long-term prevention data at this time. Um, and this is important because currently many people, um, particularly on social media, both influencers and physicians are promoting their opinions that hormone therapy is key to reducing dementia, full stop. Um, and, um, and definitely I've seen in my practice, um, clients who well beyond now their menopausal years are being asked for a consultation to come back to me, um, 15 years past their menopausal, um, date, their final menstrual period, asking about starting hormone therapy because they are now in an age where they are very concerned about developing dementia later on in life. And, um, the data at this point, unfortunately, just does not support this. So it really becomes important that we are, are paying a lot of attention and trying to catch those women um, in the menopausal transition at average age um, um, and, and women of average risk. We should be offering them hormone therapy for symptoms. Um, we can't um, in good conscience uh, promote it as a definitive method to reduce dementia risk and cognitive decline. Um, or really even cardiovascular disease for that matter, unless we can sort of, um, uh, sort of suss out those risk factors for people. We're, we should be then focusing on these lifestyle factors um, so that we can be honest with our clients um, about you know, the impact of exercise, community support, staying challenged, reducing alcohol. Um, these things are, are very clear to be improving people's cardiovascular disease and dementia risks later on in life. So these are important conversation steps to have with our clients, helping them start from where they are and having a stepwise gradual process and progress when it comes to their lifestyle changes that are sustainable in the long run. Um, and so um, overall, then we can be reassured that even though current data doesn't show um, harm in hormone therapy um, for average people, it doesn't either show that there is um, still worsening cognitive um, decline. I still see this being quoted by other physicians. Um, and, and they're honestly still believing that when, when in an introduction paragraph, when they're sending me a client, they will say, you know, in my discussion with this client, 
you know, we, we talked about how hormone therapy is associated with increased cardiovascular disease risk, increased risk of cognitive decline and dementia. And that unfortunately is still old um, quoting of the original 2002 WHI concerns. And that shouldn't be something that we as a physician community are continuing to perpetuate. Um, so that window of opportunity hypothesis of starting hormone therapy early, um, you know, I think that is going to be, you know, where that the research continues to try to give us more information. Um, you know, stratifying people based on their risks will help us to clarify that. Um, but again, with, with research going forward, hopefully this will continue to be clarified. So um, those are my take home points from these two um, cognitive uh, function related presentations. Um, thank you so much um, to uh, Stellis for supporting this program. And um, I hope that you guys uh, found something in those summaries useful um, the way I did.